Hi, I'm Josh Powell. I'm the CEO of Development Gateway and IREX Venture. I've been with DG for about 12 years and I'm based in Washington, DC. And I'm Vanessa Goaz, COO of DG. I've been with DG for about 15 years and I'm based in Miami, Florida. This is Data for What, the new Development Gateway podcast. We have several seasons on different topics in production, but in our first season, we are gonna talk about our new strategic plan, how it fits with our past work, the thought process behind it, and where we hope to go in the next few years. In this episode, we had three separate conversations between DGers and folks from IRAX. We talked to Nino Odoro and Vanessa Baldin Sanchez about the youth sector. We talked to Aminata Kamara and Becky Ward about education, and to Annie Kilroy and Tatiana Keras about media and disinformation. So historically, Development Gateway's bread and butter, so to speak, has been in aid management and public financial management, more recently in some sectors like agriculture and public health, and also in advising institutions and data strategy. What does it mean for Development Gateway to be working in these new thematic areas? I think it's exciting. One of the things that I think we've always done well at DG is, is learn new things and build really deep and meaningful partnerships. And so, you know, whenever we enter a new sector, a new thematic area, we never try to become the experts in that space. We we learn about agriculture, we learn about health, but more importantly, we identify the right partners who have decades of experience in that space. And then we bring the things that we do best. We bring data, we bring technology, we bring deep stakeholder engagement and participatory processes. And, and we help to kind of marry that with that thematic expertise. And so I think we really expect the same. The biggest difference here is that in our partnership with IREX, we've identified a strategic partnership that we can work even more deeply with together to really kind of understand the thematic areas, understand the needs, and to, to build new ideas out together, not just married to one individual project or funding source, but something that's really kind of strategically embedded in what both organizations are doing. Yeah, I think what's really exciting about the partnership with IREX also is that we're able to lean on literally decades of experience that they have in some of these sectors where they've established really, really strong relationships with government partners, local implementers, other institutions. And I think that means that we're going to be able to uh, bring our own expertise into the into the partnership and into new programming and to be able to really multiply our impact in these sectors. One thing that's really exciting about our partnership is that I think IREX takes a really similar approach to partnership building that we do. Um, they don't find local partners just as like a checkbox to um, you know, satisfy a funder, but they really look for partners who share similar values, share similar culture, and are really focused on implementing the mission. Um, and I think that that fits very well with how we have been looking for local partners in recent years as well. I agree, and I think also one of the things that I think is a core competency of both organizations is, is creating good and strong partnerships with government in particular, and being able to strengthen leadership, being able to strengthen the use of data, evidence, and information. And so I think these are ways that it's really a really perfect fit. Yeah, and I think it's, it's noteworthy that both IREX and Development Gateway have several sort of very long-term relationships with certain governments, and I think it shows the amount of trust that they put in both Development Gateway and IREX. Let's kick things off with our discussion on data in the education sector. I spoke with IREX's Becky Ward and DG's Aminata Kamara. Aminata and Becky, can you please introduce yourselves? 
My name is Aminata Kamarabaji. I'm Regional Programme at Development Gateway. I'm Becky Ward and I'm a Senior Technical Advisor in the Education Practice at IREX. Um, so that means that I manage a, a portfolio of education programmes as well as providing some support to uh, new business development and programme design efforts. And data is often an integral part of that. So I'm really excited for the conversation today. How would you at kind of a high level describe the current education data landscape in a lot of the countries where we work? Looking at the big picture, I think there's definitely recognition um, that you can use data across the education system to make decisions on education policy and practice and, and make sure that education policy is, is responsive and, and evidence-based. So because of that, you know, we're definitely seeing that data is an integral part of multilateral and, and major donor programs in education. And, um, you know, particularly the development of education management information systems or, or EMIS. But I would say that there are definitely lots of challenges in, in getting there. So there's the kind of typical infrastructure and technology gaps and there's technical skills gaps around data collection and analysis. But I think probably the biggest challenges that we see are around, you know, the, the kind of challenges around data use. So this is the, the softer issues around data and the political implications of using data, how you manage data informed decisions. And that's something that IREX has been really focused on developing, you know, training specifically for leaders in some of these um, some of these softer issues. And IREX recently had a blog piece come out about what types of information you know leaders need in making decisions in the education space. Could you talk a little bit about the types of decisions that you know these people are taking and the types of information ideally that they would have access to to inform that? I think it can be quite helpful to think about kind of input data on, on the one hand and then more output and outcome or oriented data on the other. Um, so traditionally, there's been a focus on input data. So that's things like expenditures on education, infrastructure, resources, teachers. And these can be useful for kind of policy and planning decisions around resource allocation and, and maybe also for advocacy. And, you know, one example of this would be work that we're currently doing in Jordan around teacher supply and demand. Um, so we're supporting the government of Jordan to project future demand for teachers so that they can kind of manipulate the supply of teachers and um, in particular geographies or subject areas or, or by gender. And then on the other hand, you've got kind of outcome data, so student learning outcomes. And, and this is really important for continuous enhancement of, of learning and, and also for kind of management accountability and, and holding education system leaders to, to account for, for the results of, of what we hope to achieve through education. So that's more like data on um, you know, retention, progression, attainment, and, and student learning outcomes, whether that's kind of cognitive abilities or soft skills or employability. And I think probably the, the other type of data that's also really useful is contextual data. And again, I think we've got a, a really interesting example from work that we're doing in Jordan at the moment around understanding perceptions of the teaching profession. And that's quite useful for a government to know because they're using that data to inform the design of campaigns designed to bring high quality people into the profession. So that can be quite useful as well. 
Perfect. Thank you. And Aminata, you know, you've led a lot of Development Gateway's work in, in health and in agriculture and other sectors. What are some of the, the skills and, and methods and things that you're excited about applying you know, in the education space? At DG, we are really well known for our expertise in developing innovative IT tools that help stakeholders, including country and local governments, development partners, civil society and communities to collect, access, share, and visualize data. So usually before building any tool, we take time to understand the context, challenges, and opportunities facing their stakeholders that is preventing them to make or just decisions. So if I take the example of the education, I think one is the DG added value is the development of data system and tools to improve educational system through better evidence-based decision-making. So our implementation methodology has successfully proven that when stakeholders have access to up-to-date and easy-to-understand data, it's facilitating informed decisions over time. And we know that parents, teachers, and um, governments all want to give children the best education possible, right? And I think these actors need data information to guide their efforts. And one thing I would like to um, emphasize is that a few years ago in Kenya, we have implemented a project called Open Schools Kenya. And for this project, one of the main goals was to allow parents, teachers, and government to have access to information on the profile of some more than 1,000 schools. So this allowed them to compare services of different institutions, to see photos of the school and leave some comments on the page of a school. And this is important because it was possible to start this dialogue between parents and school administration decision makers. And it can show that this is important to ensure that this link is really important and key. And it's always not really easy to get information to everyone especially in those areas where sometimes access to electricity or internet is quite difficult for some community members. And also, they can also not understand how to use a platform, for example. And this is where DG approach is really important because we make sure to include all stakeholders from the beginning, from the outset of all projects. And also, they are also involved throughout the implementation process. And most importantly, I think one of our main added value of strength has been to include CSOs because they are the main organization that can be mechanism or a tool that can relay the information in a language or methods that are easy to understand and also reusable by all the stakeholders. These are our main strengths and added value we have been able to, to test. And some of our results have proven that when you include stakeholders from the outset, when you uh, share easy to understand information, it's really important and key for people who are using the information and also for decision makers. Thanks, Aminata. And I'm glad you brought up the Open Schools Kenya project. I think one of the things that was really interesting in that project was taking a combination of official data coming from the government with citizen generated data, particularly in kind of the informal dwellings. 
and and being able to see, you know, where were the gaps in the official data? You know, where was information out of date? Where were schools just not captured in the official data? I can't remember exactly how many, but I believe there were a few hundred schools that weren't captured in official data that, you know, parents were sending their kids to and they didn't necessarily have information on things like was a school lunch provided? You know, what was the the ratio of teachers to pupils and so forth? And so I think in addition to these this kind of more centrally driven, you know, national government engagement, I think there's a lot of scope and opportunity for local level and kind of community driven engagement around the education data. It's obviously something, as you said, that's that's central to people's you know, lived experience and and to their priorities for their families and their homes. I want to pick up a little bit on something you said earlier, Becky, in terms of uh, inputs and outcomes. I think just this last week, the World Bank released a paper on the the silent crisis of learning loss. And one of the things that struck me, in addition to the obvious crisis that's been happening throughout the pandemic, was also that for many countries, they were really relying on models and on on kind of estimates, and they weren't really able to use hard data from emises or from other country level systems. I'm wondering if you could say just a little bit more on the real barriers at a country level, but then also for cross-country comparison. You know, one of the characteristics of the educational data landscape is that there is some kind of tension and some conflict between these kind of globally driven metrics, for example, you know, the kind of UN Sustainable Development Goals and some of the global indicators measuring skills in maths and science. So the OECD PISA is another example of that type of metric. And actually, the buy-in to those indicators globally is not that great. I think around 23% of countries report into S. SDG4. And it does set up this kind of conflict between what, what's almost perceived as kind of a top-down, almost colonial approach to educational data, which puts a high emphasis on, you know, kind of really methodologically rigorous collection of data. And then more localized data, which is maybe kind of methodologically imperfect if you're looking at it through that lens, but is oftentimes way more useful for teachers on the ground. And so I think there really is space for advocacy for that kind of ground up approach to to collecting data. But then I think also to to the question of of some of the challenges that education systems are are facing in, in collecting education data is that, you know, I think that there has been a recognition that we need to move away from input data towards better data on learning outcomes. But the first challenge is, is, you know, kind of defining what those outcomes are. And oftentimes in, in education, getting consensus on that can be incredibly political because, you know, you're kind of shaping the next generation and, and, you know, there's tension in these debates. So should education be secular? Is it religious? Does it enshrine values of diversity, equity and inclusion and all the things that we might like to see? There can be a lot of time dedicated to having these debates about what we should be measuring without actually getting over the hurdle of securing the agreement and, and figuring out how we do actually do that measurement. I think there's also been recognition that it's not 
just about cognitive skills. And so we're talking much more now about kind of 21st century soft or transferable skills and employability skills, maybe even things like student well-being. And so it's quite a kind of complicated, busy space full of things that are really not easy to measure. And, you know, exam national exams are not a great proxy for measuring all of these um, things that we want to know about. And then I think, you know, another challenge is that this shift to a more outcome focused approach, um, you know, tends to go hand in hand with a shift away from input control based on input indicators towards accountability for outcomes and results. And, And in a system where that hasn't existed before, that suddenly puts education leaders in a really vulnerable place. You know, suddenly they're being told that they're accountable for something that they've never had to provide data on before. And so you can hit a lot of resistance in the system. It's not something that teachers are going to welcome with open arms. And so all of these soft issues, again, really need unpicking even before you get to the technical questions of how do you actually go about collecting the data. The digital development community has tried to disrupt education for a long time, going back to one laptop per child and and beyond. Obviously, throughout the pandemic, you know, there's been a need toward a shift for more digital approaches, whether that's through education delivery or whether that's on the kind of management and the data side. You know, Aminata, do you have thoughts in terms of, you know, some of the ways that we're seeing kind of digital technology, you know, shifting in the education space? And then Becky, same question to you. I will um, always focus on how we can bring information at all levels, especially at local levels, at community levels. For example, at DG, we are, usually we are working with people who somehow master the use of IT tools. But I think one of the most important things that can be interesting for us to focus on will be to see how we can bring this tool or how we can modify it or how we can adapt our, our knowledge and our, our experience to the community level. We have sometimes, for example, work with communities, with um, radio stations to pass on information that is also available on our website. And I think the use of cell phone with SMS or calls are also an option that would be interesting for us to explore, to get information to as many citizens as possible. And this will allow those communities, I think, to be on the same level of information and to also have their voices heard and to ensure that their needs are taken into account. At each point, we need to really make sure that what we are saying is differently understood by different type of actors even though we know that technology is evolving really quickly, but we need to step back and see how we can adapt on this new technology to the community levels. With our past experience and with this new opportunity we are having with IREX, it's really important to see how we can really diversify our, um, our skills and also how we can reach more and more people, more and more citizens, so they are also able to come into the game and also make their voice heard. I almost want to kind of put a positive spin on it because I do think that COVID has has presented some opportunity for for kind of the the digital shift in education. I mean, I think one example we did some research in in Kenya during the pandemic in hard to reach communities. 
and their use of distance learning approaches, including that that was kind of technology enabled. And there were, you know, inevitably all of the challenges that you might imagine around internet access and, and connectivity. But there were also some really kind of positive takeaways too. And so, you know, the shift to digital learning away from the classroom. Um, and again, Aminata, they were referencing things like SMS, um, use of, of laptops and, and tablets too, but primarily, you know, kind of fairly low tech digital options. But it had still kind of fostered a deeper engagement between learners and their guardians so parents or guardians were kind of forced into the the world of learning of their children um, and and enable parents to kind of have a better understanding of their child's progress and, and even enable them to plug some gaps in their own knowledge kind of building their own confidence as a parent in their ability to to support their learners And then I think the other really kind of heartening finding was that students themselves perceived this kind of digital learning outside of the classroom to increase learner autonomy and to increase collaboration between them and their peers because they kind of, you know, organically came together to support each other. And they felt that that was really kind of exciting and fun. So I think, you know, amidst all of the the trauma of COVID and the disruption that it caused, there are some really kind of interesting highlights about what digital education can do, even in hard to reach communities and I hope that we're able to to kind of learn from that and then from a data perspective I think one of the things that really excites me is that you know virtual learning environments or digital learning technologies have often got really great analytics built into them and so I think there's a really kind of great opportunity to support teachers to use that data to better understand the the learning journeys of um of their students so so that's really exciting too and I think you know more generally we were really positively surprised I think by how much we were able to get done remotely you know it was really tough but we still managed to engage with ministries of education we still managed to engage with education institutions and so I hope that you know after we get over this kind of hump of digital fatigue that I think we're all feeling because we've been working remotely so much that there has been kind of you know a sustainable moving of the needle in terms of people's comfort level with technology and you know we know from research prior to the pandemic that it was that kind of technology phobia that was a real barrier in rolling some of these things out so maybe we've just been kind of nudged over that bump because of the pandemic and we'll be able to kind of take that forward in a more positive way. So I do think that it creates lots of opportunities for us. Aminata, what are you most excited about trying and learning together with IREX through this partnership? When um, we received the news of this partnership, I was really excited because IREX has a really solid experience in the education sector. And this is a sector that I really like. And I hope that by mixing or bringing our skills and expertise, we'll be able to implement really um, deeper projects. When I say deeper, it's like, for me, the community aspect is really key when it's, it's about project implementation. 
And I think working with Irex and learning about what Irex has been doing for years and also trying to also adapt their um, processes with our processes will be really key. And I'm really excited to see how we can work together, implement projects together, and also um, make sure that um, all our projects will be able to be applied at community level. And also all the, um, this added value will be also interesting for, for decision makers. And one thing that I am really looking forward is that this upcoming or one of our upcoming projects with Irex can be starting point for DG to explore more strategies or more ways to reach more people at all levels. And also um, being able to also reach people usually we are not working with and that, that are not our targets. So I think these are the main the main expectation I'm having uh, with working with Irex. Becky, for you, what excites you about working together with DG? I would actually mirror a lot of Aminata's points there, but you know, obviously from from the other side. So I'm really excited that you've primarily developed data systems outside of the education sector. So I think there's loads that we can learn from from you know kind of reflecting across sectors, and it's something that maybe we don't do enough because we're kind of in our little education. Silo. And I think I'm just really excited by the sense that we're on the same page about what's important for developing effective data systems. So this really kind of holistic approach that's not just about developing the, the technology infrastructure and the protocols, but primarily about the people who use the systems and you know Aminata you've said again and again how important it is to engage the stakeholders from the very beginning so you know I'm really excited to be working with, with you all and the experience you bring to really take the time to understand the actors in the system and their needs and their fears and um, what we need to do to build, build buy-in and, and the utility of the system. And then, you know, developing lean systems that don't have frustrating, redundant data and genuinely kind of creating the space for, for reflection and, and action so that we're not just collecting data for, for data's sake. And then I think, you know, a couple of specific opportunities that I'm really excited about are a new program in Kosovo where we are supporting the private sector um, to better articulate their skills needs and to lead the development of new workforce development initiatives. And we're working with you at Development Gateway to do some data mapping there in the, the kind of labor market information space to understand the data that's there how it's used, where it's redundant, um, and then working with our, our local stakeholders and partners to develop efficient and useful data that will inform the better matching of skills provision and, and the skills that the labour market needs. So I think that's a really exciting opportunity. And then also building feedback loops into the system so that we've got data that tells us whether we're moving in the right direction and actually improving the the skills that are available for young for young people 
And then I think the other op op opportunity that I'm excited about is the potential to digitize an institutional capacity assessment tool that we have in the higher education sector. So it's called the, the HICAP, the Higher Education Institutional Capacity Assessment Tool. And I might get your advice on an alternative name that's maybe a bit more <laughs> a bit more snappy. But at the moment, you know, that's a really effective tool that we use with universities around the world to help them understand their, their performance development needs. But it's, it's not currently digitized. And it's something that I think can be much more effective if we go down that route of integrating it into the university's kind of digital systems for managing performance and quality and continuous enhancement. So I think that's a really exciting opportunity too, where we can learn a lot from, from you all about how to do that effectively. Becky and Aminata, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk about how we can support better decision-making in the education sector and ultimately improve education outcomes. Now let's go back to my conversation with Vanessa in the studio. In the conversation about media, I was just really struck by the challenges to effective government regulation, whether that's at a national level, whether that's regional, and really the need for smart and nuanced approaches and context-driven approaches to be able to combat disinformation. It's not something that can really be fully relied on the platforms to do themselves. It's not something that government can do themselves. I think there's a really clear role for civil society. There's also a really clear role for technology and for data science to be able to support new approaches to combating disinformation. And I think that there's also a need for strengthening traditional media in ways that can build trust in those institutions and that can move at a more rapid pace that's more uh, appropriate for addressing the, the speed of disinformation through social media. I think this is a great example of where IRX's like kind of long-term experience and our innovative approaches in terms of digital solutions and data can really come together to achieve something really important. Thanks, Vanessa. Let's now turn to the discussion on media and disinformation with IREX's Tatiana Karas and DG's Annie Kilroy. Tatiana and Annie, will you please introduce yourselves? Hello, my name is Tatiana Karas. I'm working as a senior program manager for Ukraine's uh, Learn to Discern project. What we are doing, we are introducing critical information consumption skills to different audiences. Right now, we are actually working with quite a big range of audiences. We have more than 3,500 school teachers who are part of our program and uh, who are introducing their school to our lessons that we've developed to introduce critical information consumption skills in the school curriculums. We are working with higher education, we are working with decision makers, journalists, and also we are looking into joining new audiences, involving them in our project who are people that have, are currently internally displaced because of the war and also some of the refugees. I'm Annie Kilroy. I'm a senior associate at Development Gateway. I have a background in data analysis, so I work on a lot of things, data, um, data interpretation, visualization. And I most recently worked on a joint project with IREX to develop a proof of concept for um, a dashboard that will visualize various indicators on the media and business enabling factors for media in a particular country. So what are some of the pressing and emerging challenges that the media are facing in terms of combating disinformation? If you would look into the landscape of information, it was changing 
dramatically throughout the past years. You would see from public opinion surveys how the attention to, for example, more traditional media channels, TV in Ukraine has been dropping and social media becoming more and more popular among citizens to get information and to get news. And at the same time, while we have the media was its standards, with journalistic standards, with particular requirements, with legislation that is framing those things. We have at the same time social media that is like a bomb that can ex- explode at any moment, where there are a lot of different messages and narratives are being spread so quickly and so dramatically that it's also quite hard to prevent them spreading at the same time because it is also confirmation bias when people from their own community are getting some particular information for a while that is trusted that they know from others and at the same time this information narrative is being introduced into those smaller groups and small chats that is out there especially currently right now during the war what we have mentioned the number of information that is consumed at social media and messaging apps. Here in Ukraine, there is also messaging apps is one of the important sources of information. I'm sure that you've heard of Telegram and the Telegram has channels and basically those channels can be launched by anyone. On the one hand, we have official Telegram channels that are launched by the government and there you could take some trustworthy information. We have some media Telegram channels, but at the same time, there are a lot of channels like, I don't know, typical Kiev, like who is managing this channel, what types of standards are introduced in those channels and who is posting that type of information. Like there, unless there is an official link to the source, No one knows where information comes from. Basically, right now, that is the main challenge when we're talking to information consumption because people want to look into the information that is short and easy consumable. That's what especially happened since the full-scale invasion in Ukraine, where it is short fall. And there are two most popular types of information people want to get. These are short text messages and also videos up to 10 minutes. And this is something you're getting on social media right now, not on traditional media. And lack of an ability to verify that information, I think that's that's one of the big challenges that we have right now. And if we're talking about generally media and uh, traditional media TV channels, let's say, there is a big issue of uh, influences and ownership. Also, the results of some public opinion surveys, the types of the media people are consuming, of course, it influenced their opinions. And for example, in Ukraine, people were more vulnerable to disinformation if they were consuming for Russian media. That's something that brings us to the thought that independent media is a solution, but that's where like the whole new scope of challenges uh, is open, basically. Totally agree with everything you're saying. I think maybe just to expand, there's, you know, especially with social media, there's intentional sharing of misinformation. And then there's like accidental proliferation of this information. You know, you find something interesting and then you share it with a friend. And that's just kind of how the social media apps are literally made to do that. Some of the other things that we're seeing is that, you know, social media, the algorithms and the advertisements and the suggested links and stuff like that will progressively get you to more and more extreme content as well. You know, is this intentional or is this accidental and and just kind of, you know, due to 
ignorance and naivete. And then there's also a traceability, like you talked about, you know, where is this information coming from? Those problems have been really exacerbated with social media and it leads to all kinds of crazy effects on, you know, elections and uptake of public health initiatives. And I think the big problem, at least from, you know, a what can we do about it perspective is that there's a real lack of government regulations on, on any of this, right? You know, whose job is it to say or find out what is untrue? You know, is that the role of social media? Is that the role of, you know, the original source? Uh, does the government have any sort of, you know, role to play in, um, you know, being acting as some sort of clearinghouse? And that brings up a whole host of other issues. <laughs> Social media in particular, I think, is really um, changing the, the media landscape and bringing up some really interesting questions. Some are age old with new problems. Others are, are definitely new you know, the accidental spreading of disinformation is is kind of a new challenge that that we're still everyone is still kind of struggling to to grapple with. So you've both already touched on some of the ways that social media and digital technology are making the job of media harder. What are some of the things that media could do better in leveraging digital technology to combat misinformation? You know, I think an example that we have right now with Ukraine, I'm that's quite an interesting trend, which is both challenging, but at the same time provides more space for media to develop. It's uh, looking and moving also their communication to uh, social media, because since the format has changed, that is something that uh, uh, people can do. They can basically go on Telegram, I mean, in, in our reality right now, and read Le Radio Liberty there, or President's Office channel. So, and these are the way also to promote materials for traditional media through those channels as well. For example, in Ukraine, our national public broadcaster that was reformed like several years ago, one of their main goals, especially during and after the uh, election in 2019, they were pushing the whole new digital platform that is developed. So basically, they were opening their new YouTube channel, they started their communication and like active communication regionally based throughout the country. I think it's important to go to, to the person who is basically consuming directly to consumer and things in this high speed reality, people want to consume the information quickly. That's probably be the easiest thing to do. But at the same time, we have to consider and look into an effort that would help people select the, I mean, I, I will sound now uh, weirdly right channels. When I'm saying right, I'm not saying about <laughs> uh, providing people what they have to consume, but just to give them awareness about that there might be malign influences, that there might be disinformation spread and how to basically try to tackle this. I, I think that's a really good point because you know, we touched on government and some sort of like regulatory body, and we touched on the tech providers and, and social media outlets themselves. But I think you bring up a really great point about this is the way that our society is going and consuming information rapidly, then we as a society need to be able to be smart consumers of that information. It's something that we demand. We, we need to have the skills and kind of tools and things like that to be able to understand the misinformation. I think it's 
unrealistic to expect that technology providers and the private sector who are truly ultimately influenced by the bottom line um, to, you know, really be the one that, you know, makes a significant change in, in, the, in the misinformation campaign. And I touched on, you know, I think that there's definitely areas where the government can come in and or some kind of oversight body and civil society organizations are also great for this as well having some kind of accountability mechanisms for misinformation and things like that. But I think ultimately you're absolutely right in that we need to to bring this down to the consumer of information and, and really show people how to be smarter consumers of, of information and better aware of disinformation and, and knowing, you know, how to discern what is true for themselves. So I want to talk a little bit about data. You know, we've established that there's a real challenge for consumers of information to establish what's true and what's factual. And sometimes that's even the case with news stories or things that are, you know, fairly objectively verifiable. What are some of the ways that we see data being used, ideally for good, but perhaps manipulated in social media and in other traditional media as well? Data has been very interesting here. So we have data on this media outlets and the kind of information that's going out there. And then there's also data that's contained within these kind of misinformation and misleading sources, right? To, to kind of differentiate from the two for a minute, the data consumed and, and contained within various media outlet pages and things like that. I think we're, we're seeing that with this, you know, proliferation of media outlets and, and consuming information, it's really, it's getting a lot harder to kind of trace the data and information contained within these misleading or uh, unfactual news sources, it's getting really hard to understand where that data is coming from. And I think we're seeing also increasingly, and this problem has been around for forever, but you know, people are misusing statistics and people are, you know, misconstruing data and using what might actually be facts to kind of spin their own angle on it. And that ultimately results in more disinformation on its own. Again, the proliferation of data, proliferation of social media outlets and uh, news sources and then, you know, rapid fire and exchange of, of information. And I think it's really critical to um, understand where that information is coming from and to, again, be a smart consumer or a, a smart platform that can understand, you know, where that data is coming from. Digital media providers and even, you know, social media platforms and things like that, they're, they're starting to kind of understand how critical traceability really is in, in combating misinformation. But I'm just not sure that we're totally there yet on, on getting the full traceability and that kind of transparency. I think what has been really going on in terms of data more recently is this big kind of push to understand what is the financing model of a lot of these media outlets as well. There's been a big push to understand, for example, we worked on this on this proof of concept in, in, in Serbia. We found out that there's been like, I don't know, 50% increase in the number of media outlets in the country in the last like five years. And so that's kind of a red flag. Um, you know, why is this this huge increase? I mean, we can understand with the age of digital and, and COVID and things like that. But once you dig into the numbers of, you know, how old these media outlets are and where is their funding streams coming from and, you know, what kind of bias might they be leaning towards, you can kind of get a better picture of like, hmm, maybe this isn't a legitimate 
source. So I think we're getting there. Again, it, it all comes back to you know traceability and, and how far down can you trace the source of information, but also the, the media source itself. And I totally agree with you in terms of traceability and looking into the the data from different angles so the, the, all, i mean all those approaches and especially financial models that uh, that are applied into basically promoting some of the thoughts or narratives through social media also and like especially through facebook it reminded me about one example when we had presidential elections in 2019 facebook has already opened database on ad- on political ads in the US and was testing it in Ukraine at that point. So we were trying to look into who and how is paying for Facebook ads and how they were basically promoted and what type of narratives were distributed. And when we were looking into some of the into some of the things that were hid- were hidden under political ads so I think that at that point, political ad was either not allowed in Ukraine or there was some tricky way that, that Facebook was trying to, to prevent this information from being spread and how some of malign actors were smartly hiding it. So basically, there were a lot of videos hidden under sponsored ads that were on their cover picture had some absolutely random thing but as soon as you are scrolling there or touching there there was an absolutely different video that was aiming at blackmailing an opponent or like doing some some other false spreading some other false narratives or disinformation but at that point it was also important for observers to understand who is pumping which amount of funds into uh, political advertisement and uh, into different social ads. So I think that opening databases and like basically showing the data at least to uh, to activists, to social media experts, to uh, civil society, that's also an extremely important step to do because it's important to make people accountable and also to make sure that there will be some policy or some actions introduced if people are not following that accountability, if data is misused, for example, or if information is shared wrongly. At the same time, in terms of the controlling body, um, I, I'll bring up the example of the elections because I think like with data, it's one of the, the uh, you know, it's in the short period of time and there is a lot of information <laughs> within that uh, short period of time. So in Ukraine, we have this oversight by the National Security and Defense Council that was monitoring basically the news episodes and looking into how information is performed. And there is a very clear regulation in terms of how public and research has to be explained to citizens basically during during the elections especially and there were a lot a lot of manipulations noted by this oversight body related to this so it's about talking only pieces of information it's about only highlighting the data without talking about methodology and of course if you would take a wrong sample you would not ask uh, questions rightly and when you are presenting it and interpreting it you can get to very different results like are you ready to move to the moon and you would say like yes every like <laughs> the trip is, <laughs> is coming very soon so to sum it up basically data 
is a very important factor for us to look into the quality of information that is out there and also to try information spreaders be accountable. The role of the government in this case is shaping the role of the government is, in this case is very challenging. We had a lot of discussions both in Ukraine and in the countries in the region about legislation that may be focused on like for example, disinformation or like misinformation and any particular regulation of this. But that's extremely challenging because that is a topic that may be misused. And uh, in case a different power comes that has a malign intent, it may prevent freedom of expression and it may also create a lot of damage. I think that it's accountability, it's talking publicly about the challenges that are there and raising awareness of citizens about the challenge. That's probably three things that we can use to to make sure that data is not misused and used correctly. Working in media and disinformation is new in Development Gateway's new strategy. IREX has a long and successful history of supporting independent and quality media across the globe and in Ukraine specifically. What are you each excited about learning together and doing together over the next few years? I think that you you raised a very important question about independent media. And in this particular situation in Ukraine, independent media has a lot of challenges in front of them because, I mean, there is lack of funding in general in the cultural media area. And there is definitely a big need to go and to to support it. And at the same time, those citizens who could potentially support it, they are also donating a lot on different needs within the country. It's crucial to work towards and develop the strategy that would help deliver an effective information campaign and also an effective intervention, not, not, not necessarily information campaign, to, to help raise awareness and also raise support for independent media. And that is something that would be truly interesting to explore and see. And I definitely believe that that would be a very good space for, for common research and discussion, because that's basically a combination about valuing quality information and being conscious user of that information and also basically being able of uh, or like being aware that if I'm not contributing to to this process, I might not get this information. And that's how it brings me to instability, to potential threats of disinformation and like how I might be manipulated by, by, by an enemy. So I think like that's, that's the really opens the door to look into how, what are the most effective ways and strategy to raise awareness about independent media and support them. I spend a lot of my time and, and my job focusing on on data use and, and making sure, you know, the data is useful and, and usable. And a lot of that is data literacy, understanding what data you're looking at. But I'm really looking forward to this IREX partnership and taking that kind of a step above, right? We're talking about digital literacy and you know media literacy and and you know how do you really not just 
you know, understand this kernel of information, but understand all the other factors um, that might be, you know, contributing to it. So certainly not a super expert in media, but really excited to learn a lot more in the coming years and seeing all the great work that you guys are doing uh, in this space. Thank you, Annie and Tatiana, for your time and for your insight. Our final discussion in this episode will focus on the youth sector. When it comes to youth, understanding the scope of the opportunity and of the challenges is key. We have a massive global youth population, and in many of the countries where both DG and IREX work, youth make up the majority of the population. And that creates many opportunities in terms of adoptions of digital tools and approaches, in terms of engagement with government and civic participation. But it also creates challenges in terms of education, workforce participation, and skill development. So there's quite a bit of work to be done there. Picking back up with Vanessa. I mean, I think with youth, just really understanding just the scope of the opportunity and of the challenges. And we have a massive global youth population. Many of the countries where we both work, you know, youth make up the majority of the country's population. And that creates many opportunities in terms of adoption of digital tools and approaches, in terms of engagement with government and civic participation, but also creates challenges in terms of education, workforce participation, skill development. So there's quite a bit of work to be done there. Yeah, and I think it's interesting how Development Gateway has had some touch points with youth across the many sectors that we work in, but just how gratifying that work has been to be able to see sort of the next generation taking on tools like data science and data analysis to become sort of the next generation. DG had a really interesting touch point with the youth sector in recent years via an MCC PEPFAR project through the Data Collaboratives for Local Impact program. Um, project was called DCDJ and was implemented in Cote d'Ivoire. And via this program, we had the opportunity to work with local, um, a local organization to train 86 data fellows. And these fellows were placed in different institutions. They used their data science skills to advance the uh, mission of, of these institutions. And then once their fellowships were done, many of them were hired on by these institutions to become their full-time data, data scientists. Um, and others went on to careers in the public sector, in the private sector, in Cote d'Ivoire and elsewhere. I personally found that working with youth via the DCDJ project was extremely personally gratifying because it's really exciting to see somebody advance their careers in a really um, a new way for them. Um, it, before this program, from what we understood, there wasn't really a data science uh, curriculum in Cote d'Ivoire that was available to them locally at their uh, universities and in French. So it was a, an exciting thing to see them get jobs, to bring new expertise to organizations that had never used data science before and to really like advance the, the idea of data science. The other thing that was really kind of exciting about it was seeing how quickly those youth were able to actually embed within government, civil society, you know, a health facility, you know, other, other agencies and actually make a difference really quickly and, and see their skills respected, valued, and in many cases, as you said, hired on. So I think it just shows the scope of the opportunity for youth in embracing kind of digital technologies and, and data skills, um, in many cases in what can otherwise be a really challenging employment environment. Now let's turn to my discussion with Development Gateway's Vanessa Sanchez and IREX's Nina Odoro. Vanessa, do you want to take a moment and introduce yourself? My name is Vanessa Sanchez. I've been working with DG for a few years now. 
And I'm actually based in Dakar in Senegal, and I oversee the development gateways operation in West Africa and in Francophone Africa. And Nina, please tell us about yourself. I'm the Senior Advisor on Youth and Leadership at IREX. I work across IREX's programs on both youth development and support programs on leadership development, ensuring that our approaches on youth are adequate and really responsive to the needs of youth today, as well as measuring impact across our programs. Nina, what do you see as some of the opportunities, particularly within digital, and how are youth engaging with digital tools in new ways? I think when you look at youth development, it always changes, right? Young people are consistently changing because the world is always changing. And I think it's important for organizations like IREX, DG, and others to continue to assess the needs of young people. And right now, when we do that, we find that digital and data is truly at the forefront of young people's needs all around the world. The, the reality is that digital transformation, technology, um, rapid innovation is happening all over the world at a faster pace than we could have even imagined. The tech world, especially when you talk about computers, smartphones, the use of platforms and devices, and we're talking about it in many various capacities. So from education to the workforce, to personal lives, right? So there isn't much escaping. And for young people with access, we find that digital technology and data are interspersed. You can't really take them apart. So the idea of consuming information comes a lot in the digital space, what, what young people are watching. In our Learn to Discern curriculum, we know that young people consume massive amounts of information that all people actually do. And data is part of it. So really recognizing that data is important to understand, um, to collect, understand, and use for the decisions that, that they make is really critical for, I think, young people to thrive in the society we live, live in now. Vanessa, what are some things that you've seen in our work or other partners that you found impactful in supporting that desire to engage in politics and service delivery in the culture and change that they want to see? And this is a question that I ask myself, how do we involve young people more in the political scene or institutional scene, which when I see in Senegal and in other parts of West Africa, we don't see a lot of young people being engaged, whether we're talking about civil society or even in the government. When I see it in other countries and I see so how we have some young people being involved, there's a, something that I've seen really growing in Nigeria, for instance, where you have all those young women and men like creating their own, whether it's a startup or, you know, an, an NGO and really trying to be involved and get invited to some events. I just think that this is the trend that we should be uh, really engaging into. And they, when you say youth, you say digital, you say social media, you say Facebook. So really a target, a target, but a target also that should see the importance of data and the importance of evidence because, because they're young, they will be faced with, you're too young, how do you even know what you're talking about? And the best counter argument for that will be to basically prove whatever you say with a set of evidence and proof and say, yes, I know what I'm talking about because my advocacy or my argument is actually based on data from the field. Vanessa, even if young people are not always engaged, it's not because they're not interested. I think there's a strong interest from youth to be able to engage. So what are some things you've seen in our work or in the work of other partners that's impactful in supporting that desire to engage? 
I think it's it's not that they're not interested, but I I do think that at some point their interest is needs to be amplified because at some point they may be interested, but even if you give them like on the on the silver plate, I'm not sure that they will know what to do and how to to really go about this. So the interest is there. They do voice their opinion on some things that happen, whether it's in other countries or, you know, in Senegal or in neighboring countries. And they really voice a strong opinions about that. But then, then, then what? What do we do about this? Like, what can you guys do about this? So like, for example, climate change. A lot of young people are actually very interested in the effect of climate change and the way the environment is changing. And when you complain, it's too hot. Like the answer that comes right after is, of course, the, the whole world is like coming to an end because of climate change effects and stuff. And where do they get that information from? I, you know, maybe media, maybe discussions within school or whatever. But the gap between, yes, we're interested And what are some actionable, concrete steps that we can do or that we can take? I think this is where um, relies the gap um, a little bit. And for me, everything digital and technology can really be used to be able to like fill in that gap and tell them, well, we can help um, and we can help you set some goals and achieve some of those goals. And data and technology should be at the center of that. Nina, as governments adapt to better serve youth populations, what are some of the changing or unique expectations that youth have for digital governance? I think this is something that we are all grappling with now. How is governance responsive to the needs of young people and the digital space that has emerged over time and continues to be the way in which people kind of connect easily with what's going on in our governance spaces. And now we have direct access, not just to the vast information that media may give, but also direct access to our decision makers, those um, people in leadership, those people in government. To me, this is a vast opportunity and shouldn't be seen as something that is detrimental or something that should, you know, we should be afraid of. Um, young people using digital technology and people in government, you know, using digital technology creates a stronger connection and provides us quicker, faster information. I think the while that is an opportunity, what some of the issues are accuracy, right? Being quick to talk about something doesn't mean that it's always correct. Being quick to share something doesn't mean that it's always useful um, for advancing um, societies around us. And I think for young people have to be responsible in um, not only thinking about what they consume, what they share to shape our government spaces, but also being able to be responsible for their emotions, right? I think emotional capacities to understand what's going on, but respond in a way that's effective and builds upon what's happening in our governance space is critical so that we don't incite violence or anger. On the leadership side, I think this is an important space for our leaders in those spaces to see young people as assets, um, as partners in shaping the policies that they're making and bringing them to the table. There's no better opportunity than to use the digital space for that, where we are able to engage with people quicker in, in different places. And I think young people have more opportunity than ever with access to digital technology to shape governance in a way that is responsive only if our leadership and people in power actually listen to them and involve them. 
IREX has a number of programs on governance um, that leverages technology and digital technology and really enhances what young people are already doing. One of our programs, the Mandela Washington Fellowships, works across young leaders in sub-Saharan Africa that are already impacting governance spaces. And these young people are coming to the United States, learning from each other, learning from education spaces on how to actually better improve what they're doing. And one of the stories I, I really appreciate and love from this program is we had a young person that participated in the program went back to their country and they were actually faced with a challenge, a challenge. They were trying to get on a, on a plane. They had a disability and the plane had no disability accommodations in their country. And so they couldn't go to the destination where they're going to. Immediately, this young person uses digital technology, connects with their peers from the program and other leaders in the country, young leaders in the country, and they advocate for change within months. There is a policy made for these planes to have accommodations. This is, to me, like a prime example of how digital technology, youth leadership, and people in government that may or may not be youth can be shaped positively to make change. I love that example. Uh, what are what are some of the barriers that you see? You know, what are some of the things that might prevent youth from being able to as completely or effectively leverage you know changes in data and digital technology? I think there's one we have to always mention in a conversation like this, that not all young people have access to technology and to digital spaces or the access to education that enables them to use data effectively. And I think that is also an area where any organization that is looking at supporting young people in this spaces needs to come with frameworks support systems that enable young people that don't have access to better be able to use what they have. Now, digital technology, you know, without a device, it's hard to be able to leverage digital technology. But the other aspect of it is that data and information. You don't need a digital device. Um, you may receive information from someone that got information from a digital device. But as the recipient of maybe a third party recipient of that information, how do I use that information. Data is information. And every young person needs to be equipped, able to leverage information to drive the, their own lives in a positive way. So I think definitely looking at those without access and how we can better engage support and um, help them learn how to navigate a space where even if they're not the one touching a digital device, they are equipped to leverage the information that is received on a larger scale. And then I also mentioned the responsibility aspect, right? We are really in the space of not just working with young people, but enabling them to lead. And that comes with a lot of responsibility to be able to use information accurately, access digital information safely, and be able to use it effectively. So that safety aspect is very big when you were talking about data and digital spaces. We as an organization uh, and any other organization is responsible for ensuring digital safety. This cannot be something that is left to anybody else. And we need to be advocating for more policy to be able to protect young people, especially those under the age of 18, to be able to navigate digital spaces effectively, access accurate and safe information to be able to um, lead their own lives. Vanessa, what are your thoughts on the digital divide and how can we engage with and support youth using digital tools as well as accessing and supporting youth who may not have access to power, connectivity, or the ability to afford the cost of data? It's a very common 
in the sectors we work with to see some projects or some programs that involve a um, purchase of equipment, for example, whether we're talking about laptops, we're talking about smartphones, et cetera, et cetera. But at, at the end of the day, sometimes I ask myself, do we think about the aftermath or do we think about how is that this going to be sustained when the project is over? This is one problem. A second problem, we're talking about young people, okay? So they're going to be young and there is nothing wrong about that. But sometimes also when those equipment are put at their disposal, they use it for something else. They use it to surf the internet. They use it to go on YouTube. They use it to go on, to go on Facebook. I mean, they cannot be blamed. I mean, this is also part of being young and, and staying informed. When we give equipment to those young people and we're trying to have them use technology and data to improve whether it's lifestyle or their condition and whatever, I think the capacity building component should also include a capacity component on digital innovation. How can it help? But also what could be like the potential danger, which I think is not included to the best of my knowledge, or it's starting to be included more and more as far as like data sharing, like everything about data confidentiality, everything about data ownership. Those are concepts that are unknown to a lot of young kids, actually, but they're really important. What are some of the things you're excited about trying together and doing together? Nina, I'll start with you. Everyone is grappling with this issue of how do we better support young people to navigate this space safely, effectively, and for progress in the world. And I think working with DG enables us to truly do this in a meaningful way that is informed with expertise that is essential to get to the solutions. And then the idea of engaging young people. I'm really excited to partner with young people in this partnership to ensure that they their experiences, their voices are incorporated, but also that they see themselves in the solution. Oftentimes when we leave young people out of the solution, we're we're actually unsuccessful. (laughs) Um, And that is my theory because when they see the solution, they feel like it's an outside solution. And we tend to then have a lot of problems having them really own it and do as we believe is best So we need to engage the young people. So I'm really excited to see how we can work with young people side by side, work with them on strategies, working them on solutions for all the things that I I named, including safe from safety to access to responsibility. And Vanessa? I think what will be very exciting for me is for those, those young people to know that they can make a difference. So there is a way of making a difference and maybe because they're young, you know, they're going to go out in the street and scream and breathe things and find that's a way of expressing themselves. Okay. But I'm sure there are better ways um, to get to the goal. If your goal being, of course, a better, better living standards for you, for your family, better economic opportunities as well and so forth. And I think that if we manage to to let them know and to confirm that even if you're young and even if maybe the environment or the political scene give you the impression that, you know, you, you're not a good fit in there because you're too young or or so forth, don't just do what you what you have to do and know that you can make a difference and 
there are ways that we can support you and make sure that whenever you, you know, whenever you make a point and you can back back it up with evidence, it basically speaks for itself. But you know, in um, in a nutshell, really, the part of that that is um, that is going to excite me the most is to confirm that they can indeed make a difference and that we can help. Vanessa, I'm going to tell my niece and nephew that Tantan Josh got their mom to admit that they might have a point. <laughs> Don't say that. Well, actually, I tell them that. I tell them that. Some, sometimes when they, they talk, they have very interesting views. And for them to be able to listen to me and to be able to listen to my views, I'm obliged and forced to say, you have a point. I agree. I do not disagree with what you said, but did you think about this, this and that? And they get to and know that I also have a point as well. <laughs> well, it's, just, the, it's a strategy. Youth and adult dialogue starts at home. So, Thank you, Vanessa and Nina, for your time and your insight. Special thanks to all our guests. This podcast was produced by Annalisa Goodman with support from Lindsay Fincham. Our theme music was created by Mark Hatcher. Learn more about Development Gateway on our website, developmentgateway.org, or through our social media. 